Thank you, worship leaders. The verses read to us this evening are possibly some of the most familiar in the New Testament. It may be that some of the folks here actually came to Christian faith through the sixth verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no doubt that it is one of the best evangelistic tools explaining the Christian gospel. When Jesus said, I am the way, he was referring to some Old Testament scriptures in which there was an appeal, where is the way? What is the answer? Jesus said, I am the way. When he said, I am the truth, again, he was taking something from the Old Testament. Psalm 119 says, your word, O God, is truth. So he was tying himself into the Old Testament scriptures that predicted the coming of Messiah. And when he said, I am the life, again, he was speaking of that divine life that God gives to those who will trust him. And yet, surprisingly, it may, you may find it that he didn't say these words originally, did our Lord, to you to give them to the disciples as an evangelistic tool. He said them to comfort the disciples and to equip them. They were said for the disciples' benefit, primarily, rather than for the world's benefit. Why did he say that? Well, I think the answer we have to find in the previous chapter. And there we discover that there is what we call the upper room ministry. Jesus is gathering his disciples, preparing them for his departure. And in various cameos that we're going to look at this evening, he describes what it's going to be like to be his witnesses, to be his servants, to be the gospel carriers. Let's look at them as we see it together. And I'm suggesting that chapter 13 gives us the true nature of mission. I'm anticipating that many of us have come this morning, and I trust we're encouraged and we're challenged. And maybe we're saying, Lord, Lord I'm up for this. I want to do more for you. I want to be involved. And if folks have been heavily involved, I trust this morning said, yes, I want to continue to be involved. What will that mean? These little cameos that the Lord gives us here, or that John rather records, of our Lord's words and involvement with his disciples show us what it means to be a gospel carrier, what it means to be a witness. Verse 1, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to his Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, the, the Passover meal. And then look at these words. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot. And later on, we're going to read that Jesus says to this man, uh, Judas, you'd better go and do what you're going to do. And we are told Satan entered into Judas. That first cameo tells us very clearly 
that if we are going to be witnesses for Jesus to be effective as a church, you know this, I'm simply repeating what you already know, but I want to reinforce it again this evening. We are involved in spiritual warfare. We're involved in a spiritual warfare. Anyone here tonight who says, I'm going to put my hand up and in a new way, I'm going to serve the purpose of God in my generation, as the song puts it. Satan will say, right. And so easily we become the targets of the enemy. It's not simply that the world out there is indifferent. The world is blinded and people will believe the lie. Our people will act in ignorance. Take Islamic State. The West has said these men are butchers. These men are, they're malicious. They're terrible. Well, that's true, but there's more than that. A clue to what they do and what they say, indeed what they are, is found over in chapter 15 of John's Gospel, where Jesus says a time will come when they will kill you, they'll put you out of the synagogue, and they'll kill you, and they will believe they're doing it for God. Don't dismiss these guys. Don't think of them as just bloodthirsty. They genuinely believe that what they are doing is the will of Allah. And they will justify all the things that the murders, the beheadings, the rapings, they will justify it from their understanding of the Quran. And some will even point in some cases to the ancient scriptures of the Old Testament. That's a story for another time. We are involved in a spiritual warfare. I think I saw this very, very clearly when working as the director of MIKO, when down in Yemen some years ago, and some of the stories I'm relating this evening, they happened a few years ago, but they are so relevant, I, I resurrect them for this evening. Down in Yemen, we had a, a nurse there, an Irish lass, she's now retired, but uh, a wonderful country is Yemen. It's tragic to see it devastated by war uh, and civil war at this time. Magnificent buildings that stretch back centuries uh, uh, and wonderful people. But this is Violet, an Irish nurse. She was working at Jibla Hospital and working with women, serving as a nurse. Her idea, her idea of relaxation is to go into the mountains uh, under armed guard and teach basic health care to, to the villages. A remarkable woman. Well, she was there at Jibla Hospital when a gunman came and bursting into the hospital killed the main gynecologist and then wounded several of the staff members. The man was arrested and when he came to trial, the judge in Sanaa said to him, why did you do what you did? And he said, sir, my wife came back from Jibla Hospital expecting our first child. We were going to lose that baby. But Dr. Martha said to my wife, I can help you. Dr. Martha saved my child. And my wife said, what a wonderful woman is Dr. Martha. And he said, it was at that moment I determined to kill her. Can you understand that? The doctor who is going to save the life of your first child, I will kill her. 
The man wasn't mad. The man realized that his wife had become attached to this Christian doctor. She might influence his wife. She might turn to Isa, to Jesus. And in that moment, I determined to kill her. And friend, if anything encapsulates the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged, it's that our arch enemy is out to destroy the church. Of course, he can't do it. He is a defeated foe. But because he is ultimately defeated and knows that one day, as we sang earlier, Christ will come, God's kingdom will be established, he's going to do everything he can in the meantime to hinder the advance of that kingdom, to stop the sound of the gospel. We are involved in spiritual warfare. I turn to the next cameo. All this is leading up to why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The challenge of servanthood. You know, being a Christian is hard work. Well, we read in chapter, back to chapter 13, that the evening meal was prepared, as I said. Satan is entering Judas Iscariot. And then verse 3 Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he's recognizing who he is. He never failed to do that, but it's now brought into focus. And so he said to the disciples, fellows, remember who I am. No. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Wow! Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall at that point? You understand what's happening. In the ancient world, they didn't have bathrooms and washrooms as we have today, but as you went into a, a public building or a, a restaurant, and it seems this was an upper room, a kind of restaurant, there would be great uh, bowls for, uh, for washing. Normally, there would be servants who would wash the feet of the guests. No tarmac, sandy roads, sticky feet. You're going to lie next to each other as you eat. So for hygiene, if nothing else, certainly for comfort, you wash your feet. But there are no servants. Maybe they couldn't afford them. Maybe there was a night off. We don't know. But what we do know is that as the disciples would look at these bowls for washing, they walked past them. wonder who's going to wash our feet. Will there be servants? And not one of them thought to do it. And Jesus does it. And then every one of them wished, oh, I wish I'd done it. I wish I could take that towel. And so when Jesus comes to Peter, Peter says, no, this is not right, Lord. You shouldn't be doing this. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No way. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, says Peter, you shall never wash my feet unless I wash you. You have no part in me. Now, there are theological things here that we're going to miss out tonight. Not that they are not important. They are. But I simply want to draw out the example. Jesus says in verse 10, uh, sorry, in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. You should follow. It's hard work being a Christian, a servant. That picture is of one of my Miko colleagues who at a conference was in a foot-washing ceremony. I have to confess I've never shared in one of these. It's not that I've avoided them. I don't dismiss the value that people say there is in washing one another's feet, having your feet washed or washing someone else's feet. But it's symbolic. The real thing is when the rubber hits the road. Am I willing to serve you? Are you willing to serve me? That is part of Christian ministry. And can I say, it's part of the witness that we have to a lost world. We don't stand on dignity. We serve one another. That, as I say, is why in the Middle East today, there are Muslim people coming into the churches in Jordan, in Syria, and in Lebanon, because they're finding there are people who are willing to serve, doctors who will administer drugs without charge, people who are prepared to make a meal for them, people who are prepared to welcome them into their homes. Washing feet is hard work. And you know, we should pray for the church in Lebanon. I hear from church leaders who are saying, we are exhausted. They're not tired of serving the Lord. They're tired in service for the Lord because people are coming and coming and coming being a servant. I first was tested, I think, in that when I went, as I'm told, as one of the first, if not someone says I am the first person to have been the pastor of a church, a brethren church in the UK. It started in the West Highlands. I remember going to the little brethren church in Campbellton and uh, I met the elders and they welcomed me. And then one of the elders said, "Um, so you're the new pastor? Yes, delighted to be here. And then speaking generally, said, uh, can I ask, will the new pastor take his turn at cleaning the church? I thought, what? I said, well, I, I, I didn't think that's what I was called to do. Ah, he said, so the new pastor's not prepared to wash the disciples' feet. Ouch. And with maybe more youthful arrogance than godliness, I said, well, I've come because I think the disciples need more than their feet to be washed. But as soon as I said it, I thought, wrong thing. And so I said, all right, I will do it. And so what I did was this. I would go and I would wash the church in my turn. And rather like here, the street into which the front door was an open area, and I would always have my back to the street so that nobody saw me think shame on me. After a few months, the church secretary came and said, this is ridiculous. We didn't call you to clean the church. You're working night and day, as was Margaret, to serve the church and the community. We'll sort it out. I'm glad it happened. And while I regret that I failed the test, I'm glad I rescued myself in measure, but I learned the lesson. It's not easy to be a foot washer. I remember when I was at Bible college, 
in the old BTI, in the great dark castle that was there in Bothwell Street. When it was closed at night, there was a side entrance. And one of the students, a man who came from the Telstar project, some of you will remember that, one of our first ventures in the UK into uh, space exploration and so on. And Dr. Mike had come from uh, Oxbridge. He did have a silver spoon in his mouth. And he arrived rather late. He went to the side entrance and there were three bells, students, janitor, principal. And in the darkness, he didn't see. He pressed the principal. And down came the Reverend Andrew Macbeth, affectionately known as the wee man. And Andrew Macbeth always wore a stiff collar, which he had taken off. And so Dr. Mike assumed him to be the caretaker. He said, there you are, my good man. Here are my cases. I'm sorry I'm arriving late. Please take me to my room. Without question or demur, the Reverend Andrew Macbeth, principal of the college, spiritual statesman here in Scotland, said, yes, welcome. Carried his cases in and eventually got one of the students. You can imagine Dr. Mike's feeling when the next morning Mr. Macbeth stood at the rostrum to welcome the students to a new term. That story went round the college and our estimate of the Reverend Andrew Macbeth went up and up, a willingness to be servants. It's part of mission, being willing to serve. And sometimes on the mission field, Margaret and I, I hope with true humility, have had to remind our workers, you're here to serve. This is an example, said Jesus. I've set you. It's an important one. John takes almost half the chapter on it, a lesson that we must learn. Does it excite you, this idea of being part of mission, spiritual warfare, a call to serve, and sometimes not to be recognized for it? And then something else. The possibility of disloyalty. Come over to the second uh, verse 19 here. I tell you this before it happens, so that it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send that accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me, that servanthood. And then these words, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another. Betray you, Lord? And then the question, who? Is it I? Is it I? And Simon Peter made motions to the disciples and said, ask him, uh, to John that is, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Now, I was always taught as a good little boy in Largs that you don't dunk your biscuit in your tea. Bad manners. But it was a common practice in the ancient world to dip bread in wine and hand it to a friend. It seems almost unhygienic, but that's what they did as a symbol of friendship. And Jesus takes that bread, dips it in the wine and hands it to, yes, Judas. I don't know how Judas felt at that moment, guilty and yet determined. And verse 27 says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said quietly, what you've got to do, you better go and do. And so he goes out into the darkness. And it's with real symbolism at the end of verse 30 that John writes, and it was night. That's a play on words. 
I don't know how Judas felt. I wonder how our Lord felt. Betrayal. Margaret and I have been involved in many counseling experiences over the years. And one of the ones that I think still causes pain is when someone comes and says, my partner in marriage has been unfaithful to me, has betrayed the love I gave to him or her. Betrayal is a terrible, terrible thing to deal with. And it's also true in Christian service, where someone that you have loved in the Lord and served with turns against you. I can think of more than one church that I know in Scotland today where that's exactly what's happening, where church leaders have torn each other apart and the flock is being scattered currently even as I speak. It's tragic. And it's as if Jesus is saying, or John is recording this of Jesus, to say to us, are you prepared for that possibility in Christian service? One of the countries that I haven't mentioned very much is Turkey. And you have links with Turkey here. The Word of God is going out there. Uh, I'd received a letter just yesterday saying that a young missionary had gone out for a conference, has come back. In fact, he's not really a missionary. He's, He's a Christian student and is not being allowed to enter the country. And it looks like the government is going to use the present situation there politically uncertain, to keep Christians at bay and, if possible, if they go out, not to let them back. But God is at work there. Come down to this section of Turkey, which we know in the New Testament in the book of Revelation as the area of the seven churches. And you'll see there Ephesus. Well, just outside Ephesus, this couple have lived and continue to live Camille and Kathy Musa. Camille Musa was himself a Muslim, came to faith through the Lord Jesus, the witness given in a church in the northeast of England. He had come here for tertiary education, met Kathy, a lapsed Roman Catholic. It's a remarkable story. And they went back to their beloved land, or his beloved land, to bear witness. That simple building is the church of Ephesus today. I love that that slide. The church in Ephesus was a significant feature of the church's growth in the New Testament, and there's a church there today. It's a small church. Downstairs books, upstairs where they worship. But the story I tell is this. Camille Musa founded the first Bible school in the whole of Turkey. There were, as I recall, about 12 students in the first year, a nice number indeed. And he poured his life into these young men. He poured time and energy, leading them to faith, teaching them the Holy Scriptures, equipping them for Christian ministry. And then one day, two of them disappeared. And to his horror, the next day in the national newspapers, his picture was carried The story was told that Camille Moussa was not a Christian. He was actually a CIA spy. His name was defamed, television, radio. The man was crushed in spirit. He had poured his life into the lives of these young people, and this is how they repaid him. What was he to do? 
give up, go home, discouraged, defeated. No, through Christian friends, he continued. He recovered, bruised, wounded, wounds that will probably still remain, although there has been healing. He has gone on making the Bible school, now one that travels around the country. But more than that, Camille Musa contacted Terry Ascott, the founder of Sat7. I imagine this church has heard of the radio broadcasts that go out across the whole of the Middle East, Sat7. And Camille made contact with him and started what's called Turk7. Tonight, the Christian gospel will already have gone out on the radio in Turkish across the whole of Turkey. 75 million people plus in that country. He could have become so despairing, so discouraged. But instead, rather like David, some of you remember that verse, where all his soldiers fled from him. And he was left alone at a place called Ziklag. And there's a lovely verse that says, David strengthened his hand in the Lord his God. That's what Camille Musa did. That's what our Lord did. He kept his focus. He wouldn't be dissuaded. He had invested in this man for three years, and yet he turned against him. He knew that shortly his disciples would forsake him and fled, but he didn't stop right to the end. And that's why John is recording these words, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them, and he showed them the full extent of his love. Are you encouraged, folks? This is what it means to be involved in mission as a church, as individual people across the street, across the seas, a spiritual warfare here in Hamilton. The challenge of being servants, willing to lay down our lives for one another, wash one another's feet. My illustration was stupid, I know, but I hope it served a purpose because it reminded me as I was preparing of how a simple thing like that was I prepared to wash the floor of the church can throw us, instead of saying, I will do what has to be done for the advancement of the gospel. And what if people will turn against me? And what if people will exploit me and use me and abuse me? Will that put me off? And then there's the next two more. The importance of loving unity. Come to verse 31. I'm referring to these as little cameos. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And verse 31, 33, sorry. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. You won't find me. And so he says in verse 34, I'm giving you a new commandment, and it's this. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then this powerful verse. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's that love that brings together people who are so different, intellectually different, socially different, ethnically different, politically different. It's the one entity in the world today that brings people together like nothing else. And the bonding is love, love. Miko, over the years, has been involved in serving the church and will continue to do so 
under the wider canopy of SIM. We've never directly been involved in church planting. Our task has been to help the church. In fact, that's been Miko's strength. We go to the existing church and say, how can we help you to do better the work of the gospel? And many important church leaders have said, your model is the model we need. Not people coming in and telling us what to do and bringing Western ways, but saying, how can we help you? But when in northern Iraq, in the city of Erbil, to which I've referred already, one of our workers began to church plant, it was exciting. I remember getting his emails. How should we have governance, a congregational governance, the, the, the kind you have on the brethren, or the Episcopal form of governance? Should we be looking for bishops? And it was great to consider what this meant, because up there in northern Iraq, right at the top of it, you can see it there, the city of Erbil, it's in the news frequently, the church began to grow. And apart from my colleague Sandy in the front and a couple of guys in the back who are also from the West, all of these are the converts. This is the church, a church planted. He was so excited. They would come together. And this was the leadership team. The men would study in one room on their own the women and children in another. Sandy began to teach them God's word. The children would enjoy fun and friendship. They would end with a meal, which they clearly are enjoying in that slide. As a result, other people who had come in found faith in the Lord Jesus. I remember Sandy telling me that he was teaching them some of the terms of discipleship. For example, he said, if you have two coats, you give one to your brother. Good stuff. And then some came. It happened they came from America. They could have come from Hamilton, from Largs. But they said, what? Two coats? Why, if you ask God, he'll give you ten coats. And prosperity teaching came. And as a result, even though that guy they appointed as the pastor, I don't think you'd disagree with him very readily by the looks of him, but apparently he's a good man. There they are, the same picture. Fellowship broken. The church was divided. The church was split. What do we do? Do we listen to Sandy's message? If I have two coats, I give one to my brother. Or to these guys who have come and said, if we pray, God will give us ten coats. And as a result, that fellowship has never been repaired. And that dear church, I understand now there's only a handful of people. They have been scattered. What happened? There was a lack of love. There was a lack of real caring and understanding. Love one another as I have loved you. Don't push your message instead of mine. Make sure that we are in harmony together. Make sure that what we are doing is for the glory of God and for the unity of his people. Don't divide unless you really, 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 really must on some significant issue. It was my privilege to speak at the induction of the new pastor. Some of the folks here, I think, know in Yoker Evangelical Church. And as I prepared, I chose feeling led by God, Ephesians chapter 4. 
And I was surprised again, although I'd known the chapter well, I thought, when Paul is speaking about staying in unity, he doesn't first of all go to theological accuracy. He doesn't go to orthodoxy. He says, be patient with one another. Be tolerant with one another. Love one another. And that's what God calls us to do if we're going to be significant in the task of mission. Love will prevail. Personal preferences will be put to the side. We'll work at things. We'll serve one another as Christ has served us. But lastly, there could be a cost in witnessing. A new commandment I give you. Simon Peter says, Lord, You've said you're going. Where are you going? Verse 36. Jesus says, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you'll follow me later. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. Finally, in Turkey, again, some of you may be aware that these three men, a German and two local men, who were leading a Bible study in Malata in 2008, suddenly the students who were with them rose up, cut their throats, and jumped out of the window. That trial is still continuing, and the court has still not decided what to do with the men who clearly were guilty. I, I didn't know any of these men but I did know this man. He's alive, as far as I know, but we call him Dana for protection, was one of the first converts in that church in northern Iraq. And one day he went into the Bible bookshop and was shocked to discover that the manager of the Bible bookshop in Erbil was lying on the ground bleeding to death, and he cradled him. And suddenly people appeared who had actually been the murderers still on the premises. And they looked at him and they said, Ah, your blood is on him. You are the murderer. And these murderers called the police. He was put in prison. Can you imagine how he felt? He's now in South Africa, where he serves the Lord. And I was preaching there, and I traveled with him and he gave his testimony of how he had been in prison. And as we were traveling on the plane from Joburg up to, uh, to Cape Town, rather, um, I said to him, tell me, what was it really like? And how did, you, how did you feel about this? Well, he said two things. One, he said, your colleague Sandy taught me well. He taught me that if I was going to be a real witness, there would be a cost. So he said, I expected that. But he said, in the prison, they beat me. They beat me until I was black and blue. They left me cold just in my underwear, and as a result, my joints have swollen, and he still suffers to this day. But he said, Jesus appeared to me. And being a slightly cynical Scot, I said, what do you mean Jesus appeared to you? He said, well, he appeared to me. How do you know it was Jesus, Brother John? He said, you always know when it's Jesus. I still wasn't persuaded. I said, tell me. He said, I was in the prison. They put me in with a, a, another a murderer. 
uh, an extremist, Buddhism the same, they often do that, maybe that one will destroy the other, I don't know. And he said, suddenly, Jesus appeared, and he said, took my hand, and he said, I will be with you. And he said, there was a bright light, and I saw him, and I heard that voice, and he was gone. And he said, I turned to this man who was sitting in the corner of the cell in the fetal position, staring at me. And he said, I said to him, did, did you see that? Did you see that figure? And he said, he looked at me and looked around. What, what, what figure? You didn't see the figure. Why are you sitting like that? He said, who are you? Who are you? What do you mean? He said, you were one foot off the ground. I watched you. One foot off the ground. Who are you? And at that point... I believed him. I don't suppose as we suffer here for the gospel, and we do, we're rejected sometimes, we're laughed at, we're ignored. It's not nice. I'm not saying it's impossible for Jesus to appear. He may appear. But what we have is his precious word. What we have, what Dana didn't have, was a crowd of people to support him there in an isolated prison, falsely accused of the murder of one of his dearest friends. Jesus appeared to him. He gives us exactly what we need. And that's why, as we look at these things, the spiritual warfare, the challenge of servanthood, the possibility of disloyalty, the importance of us continuing in love and the cost of witness laid before us, Jesus says, fellas, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. Trust in God. Trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And listen to these words. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that where I am, you may be also. Our Lord is saying to us tonight, yes, the way may be rough, the way may be hard, but look, constantly look forward to that day when I want you to be with me and you'll be with me forever. I won't sing those words, but some of you remember them, I'm sure, from times past. Of times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So, dear friends, let's bravely run the race till we see Christ. And that's why Jesus said, fellows, trust me. I'm the way. I'm telling you the truth. I am the life. And I'm sure as we finish this evening, the Lord would say to me, don't forget to tell them that that is still a great evangelistic tool. Tell them to go out and spread that word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But remind them it's there for their comfort, for their assurance that one day 
we'll be in his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words.